Welcome to the latest episode of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and we're going to talk about the the pandemic in the the theme or light of the term essential workers. Like, what is an essential worker? Who are they? Uh, and the best way to talk about that is to actually have guests who have spent their uh, professional lives in this pandemic and beyond doing this work. And so I, I'm going to have them introduce themselves. And what I'm going to do is uh, ask Sean to introduce himself uh, in the way you prefer. Hello, my name is Sean Thurman. Um, I come to you all from the Second Fox Nation of Oklahoma. Uh, I'm a community health nurse at the Seattle Indian Health Board um, with a focus on serving um, and taking care of the homeless native population um, within the Seattle region. Um, and I use he, him pronouns. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. And then we'll have Lois uh, take a turn. Um, hi, thank you very much, Frank. My name is Lois Martin. Pronouns are she, her. I am the director of Community Day Center for Children. We are a nonprofit early care and education center that's located in the Central District of Seattle. It was founded in 1963, and I have had the pleasure of being the director for about uh, 31 years. Wow. 31 years. That center is actually 10 years older than myself. Um, so thank you both for coming out uh, and having this conversation. Uh, on the podcast, we love to hear stories, right? And so stories are a, a major component of building belonging between people. And so I know you two have talked on the same uh, program together. And also, I would be remiss without uh, shouting out the Gates Discovery Center, which is our partner in this podcast in the series. Uh, and so I want to just thank them for their work. So what I'm going to have you both do is to tell us your origin story. What are the events, the people, the places that shape who you are now, right? And so as the things that you do, who you are, as you can take, you know, as much time as you want, but we would love to hear who you are and we would listen to your stories and just learn from them. So um, I am a native of Seattle, born and raised in the, you know, what some refer to as the central area, but the central district. And can say that having two parents who were from uh, northern Louisiana, um, my mother worked as a sharecropper when she was a teenager until she moved to um, St. Louis, where she opened her own restaurant and um, went back to school to receive a degree in business and eventually migrated to Seattle. Um, my father was uh, born in Louisiana as well and migrated here to work at one of the shipyards in the um, not too long after World War II, just trying to find a way to escape the um, segregation that was in the South. And so they both met here and, um, you know, got married and purchased property in the Central District and, and raised myself. And I have two older siblings and one is gone now. Uh, and I have a brother too, um, who also still, we all, the three of us that are left still reside in Seattle. So when I think about the folk that influenced me the most, it would definitely be my parents. My father was an um, 
entrepreneur, he was very much engaged in some of the the work around um, labor rights and that type of thing, especially for black contractors. Um, and my mother, once she moved here, went back to school and, and received a degree and um, became an LPN. And then she began to take care of children in her home when I was born. So I guess I kind of told my age just then. And, um, and started bringing in the children of single moms, um, predominantly um, young black single mothers, and um, would provide a safe place for them to bring their children. And then it just grew from there. I had absolutely no interest in working with children. My background was corporate America. I worked for IBM out of school. I went to a HBCU in Alabama. And then I went from there and worked for IBM for a number of years, uh, first at, in their corporate and headquarters in one of the locations. And then um, after that transitioned into to become a systems engineer and, um, and then moved back home in the 90s or so, um, began to help my mother with the books and just, just to give her a helping hand. And I just enjoyed the environment working with children and um, the families. And so IBM offered a buyout. I took it, left corporate America and have not looked back. And I enjoy working with the children and families and I'm very heavily involved in um, advocacy work around early care and education issues. And here I am. Wonderful. Uh, so you were in Armont, New York when you were at IBM? I was at Terrytown. Terrytown. So they nice. had different... Mm-hmm. Terrytown, New York. They had different campuses. And so I was at the Terrytown campus. I grew up on the East Coast. So I was in New Jersey. And similar to you, I actually had a start in my career with uh, technology. So I worked for MSNBC.com with Microsoft. Mm-hmm. I graduated uh, college. And then they flew me out to Seattle. So that's why I'm here. But no, it's fascinating to hear. Uh, and our uh, civic architect and our leader at Civic Commons, Michael Brown, is uh, born and raised in Louisiana. I, I wonder if your parents actually, when they met in Seattle, if that 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 whole upbringing in New Orleans was like a factor in their like connection with each other. Just curious. Well, I'm sure it was. So they're from. Um, my dad was from um, Minden, which is right outside of Shreveport, and my mother was from Monroe, which is not very far from Minden. Um, and I know it had a lot to do with it because if you think about that connection around um, food, um, as well as the way that you know expectations um, are different too based on where you're raised. So I would imagine that was one thing that um, you know my parents disagreed about different things, but the one thing that they never disagreed about is. Um, in our upbringing and how, and the set of values they wanted us to have. Mm-hmm. And the biggest one was, you know, hard work and giving back and caring about your community. Mm-hmm. And those are things that have stuck with all of us as we've transitioned into adults. You know, those are values that everyone should uh, keep upholding. Um, thank you for telling us your origin story, Lois. I appreciate it. So, Sean, I'm going to turn over to you, um, and I would love to hear your origin story. Tell us about who, what are the things that helped you become who you are now? 
Yeah, um, you know, I grew up in Shawnee, Oklahoma, um, amongst the Sac and Fox Nation, amongst my people. And, you know, I was born and raised there. That's all I knew up until, you know, hitting college. Was raised by a single father. Um, and, you know, that really shaped a lot of, you know, who I am and even how I, you know, carry myself today because, uh, you know, that's who I looked up to. Um, living with uh, my grandparents, his parents, um, for the first, you know, I think five years of my life, um, living in their home and also seeing like um, what it means to be traditional and like, because their generation was kind of in that middle ground of like knowing our, our ways, knowing our culture. Um, but also being forced into almost like an assimilation of, you know, uh, what was expected of them um, by the society. So uh, that really like shaped me early. Um, my dad was a millwright in a copper company um, growing up. Um, so he, you know, kind of worked his way into that, um, learned the skills on the job um, until, you know, I was probably in my uh, probably early teens, uh, he got laid off from that job. And, you know, he was kind of in a, a spot of like, what do I do now? Um, so he started um, working with disabled children, um, doing that for a while. And then he's like, you know what, I want to go back to school and get an education, higher education. Because uh, nobody in my family at that point had a higher education. And for me to see that, I was like, wow, like that's special, you know. You could just bounce around from job to job if you wanted, but he um, he chose to go back and get a degree in business management, um, and which was huge. This is the first in our family to get a higher education, get a degree, and so he took that and ran with it, and actually became uh, the principal chief of my tribe, um, which is huge. Because you know we we vote in. It's kind of like how we do U.S. elections. We vote in uh, for those positions, but for him to attain that, you know, later in life really inspired me and made me realize like how important education was because growing up, you know, it was a little rough. I could have taken one way and, you know, might not have turned out so well, um, but that made me focus on, you know, what was important. Um, so growing up in, in Shawnee, like you're amongst your people, but because of how the Oklahoma land run turned out, you know, you're really you're really kind of living with everybody of all walks of life. Um, so I grew up going to um, a middle school, which consisted of, you know, native kids and farmer kids. So like, I had that perspective of like, wow, like here I'm as a native kid, you know, going to school with kids who I'm not familiar with and have no idea what kind of lifestyle that is, you know, living in a farming community. Um, but it it really helped shape me to like, look at the world a little different of not just from like my native perspective or you know how I was raised um, and really kept track uh, going through school went to uh, the University of Oklahoma um, where I reconnected with my wife uh, which set off kind of this adventure of what led us to Seattle now which has uh, been such an amazing journey um, so we reconnected University of Oklahoma uh, she is also in medicine, so she's a family medicine doctor, and we were in pursuit of, which was funny, I was medicine, she was nursing, and once we got <laughs> into education, 
we were like, wait, no, these are, you know, this is not for us. And so we switched careers, basically. Like that's I jumped amazing. into nursing. And I was like, ah, nursing's, yeah, that's more my my vibe. And she's very like type A, so like she needed that, that structure. <laughs> uh, and so we, you know, we kind of started this adventure of, you know, me tagging along with her because um, I was still in the process of my education and we moved to Duluth, Minnesota um, for her med school and, you know, moving away from Oklahoma because that's all I've ever known to like a, what I call like a tundra, which is crazy up there with in the winter time. Um, and then, you know, bouncing from Duluth to Twin Cities for two more years and then eventually landing in, in Seattle um, where we've, we've pretty much built our foundation of our family um, here in Seattle, which I would have never told myself ever growing up, like, I'm going to build a, a family in, in Seattle. Um, but here we are, you know, three boys. Um, and we're just, we're loving life here. So yeah, that's how I ended up here. Nice. How old are your boys? Um, they are six, five and 10 months. Oh, wow. You have a young family. Yeah. 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 Six, five, and ten months. Nice, yeah. nice. It's a riot. <laughs> <laughs> Something you mentioned, Sean, was when you were uh, in school and you were with, you know, farmer families from farmers, you know, the farming community, and how like the the cultural differences were so shocking because that's not the way you grew up. Uh, and I had a similar uh, experience as well. You know, growing up in South Korea until I was three, but, you know, living in like a kind of a Korean enclave in northern New Jersey and then uh, New York, where we basically, you know, went to church with Koreans and like ate Korean foods, but Korean at home. And I remember in kindergarten, just being like, who are all these, especially like, you know, in my community at that point was mostly Irish Italian kids. And I was like, who are all these, these names are so weird. And I'm sure they thought of that me, right? I thought, thought of that of me as well, but and then I remember uh, having dinner at one of my friend's houses for the first time in like middle or, or high school. And I knew that, you know, in Korean, everything, food is communal, right? You put everything in the middle, you get your maybe own thing of rice, but you kind of just take from the middle and eat. And I knew that like, in terms of like a lot of like uh, Western and American families, you had your, you make a plate, you have your own plate. And so I was like, oh, and I remember this is kind of a funny aside. Um, I was at my friend's house. And so I knew this in my brain. This is the first time I've had dinner with like a, you know, non-Korean family in their home. And I get like a very kind of pretty large thing of spaghetti, like pasta in front of me. Right. And so I was like, oh, I guess that's for me because, you know, I thought I'd get my own plate. So I started eating spaghetti and then I realized everyone else was eating steak. And I was like, well, oh, that's weird. Maybe they didn't realize I was coming. No one said a word. It was very nice. We finished dinner. You know, we went back to my friend Howard's room. He closes the door and immediately he goes, why'd you eat all our spaghetti? And I was like, what? He's like, my mom had a steak for you, but you started eating the spaghetti. And they were like, uh, I guess we'll just let him eat. So for four more years of high school, every time I came over to their house, Mrs. Wonder would tell me, Frank, this spaghetti is for everybody, not just for you. It was a four-year running joke. Oh, my goodness. But, oh, you know, that's the great thing about telling these stories is that, you know, when you hear a story, and, it, and this is definitely for both of you. You can start like chiming in with each other. You can like say, like respond to a thing because we have different experiences, but we also have shared experiences as well. Uh, and so that's a great connection of humanity to like find like things that are like similar 
Uh, and so feel free to expound upon each other's stories or comment um, at any point in time. Yeah. Sean, I'm going to stick with you, but this question is going to be both for you. So, you know, our friends at the Gates History Center worked with you both on a program to talk about essential workers. And they did a great uh, campaign with Amplifier. There's some great art that was posted across the community. And I just kind of want to get your, what is your vibe about the term essential worker? Like, does it resonate with you? Do you have questions about it? Like, just, yeah, what is your, like, kind of reaction to that that term? Yeah, I think whenever the pandemic first hit and they were starting to throw this around of essential workers, um, I was kind of thinking, well, am I? Like, I mean, because thinking about the medical field, thinking about nursing in particular, I'm thinking like, oh, you know, this is what I signed up for. This is what, you know, I didn't expect a pandemic, but expected to take care of people that were really sick. Um, so whenever I heard the term, I was kind of like, I feel like stuck in the middle of mm. being like, I'm not an essential worker. Like, I mean, this is my job. This is what I do. Um, and I thought more of the people um, that were doing it that didn't have the PPE didn't have the, you know, the protocols in place that were keeping us um, as safe as possible. So mm. I, I immediately thought of like, man, my grocery workers, um, like where Lois is coming from, like childcare workers. I'm like, man, you guys are, you're essential because you're keeping the rest of us going. But yet you're in a position that's kind of like, braver than I, because I wouldn't step into a room with somebody without PPE on, you know? Mm. Um, and so I I really looked to those other people in the community that really kept the whole community going. Um, mm. So I kind of looked outside of like what I do and really like acknowledged and praised those people. And that's, that's really interesting, Sean, because for me, I just think about anyone whose position keeps our country's infrastructure going. So you are definitely a part of that. I mean, what would we have done? I just think about all of the, the the sirens that went off and, you know, as people were lining up, especially in New York, right? And in different large cities, just basically paying tribute to the healthcare workers because you were the ones, you know, also, you know, putting your lives on the line. And we lost a lot of really good people as we were trying to figure this out at the very beginning, all across the the um, the world, I just think of all of the amazing talent that we lost due to COVID. What a um, deficit that puts our world at without having those folk in it. Um, and so, for me, when I think about child care or early care and education, as I the term I choose to use. Um, for me, it was acknowledgement that was past due and realizing that the early education piece of the educational system in our country, which, you know, most people say K through 12 higher learning, but it really starts with early care and education and goes that whole gambit and being able to be recognized that, oh, wait a minute, uh, my child's early learning places closed. What are, I can't go to work. What am I going to do? And, um, and that has helped having that recognition for us has helped to spur that larger conversation that we needed to have about investment in, um, 
in our critical industry. Absolutely. Uh, I think I appreciate this conversation because, you know, I think about essential workers and then you think about like, what is the opposite? Like, Oh, an, an essential worker. That just seems like really mean. <laughs> it's like your work is incredibly not essential. It's actually super periphery. They don't really, we don't really need it, but I think it was kind of like what you said, Lois, that kind of resonates. It's like, it's past due, right? It's the, and I agree with you. I agree that Sean and Lois, you're both essential workers and the people that are in your craft are essential. Um, and it's just one of those things where it's just like, we talk about teachers, we talk about early learning, we talk about nurses, we talk about people that, you know, feed us, you know, be it farmers mm-hmm. or people that work in groceries the people that didn't have a chance to take a day off, right. Or to, to close down or, you know, that their, their skills and their expertise was still needed during the pandemic. Right. And it was that, in that sense, it was essential. So I do like the term. I always, but I always want to ask people like for the people that, that are the term itself, like how does that land up on you? Because, you know, we shouldn't just be giving people terms and then expecting them to take it. Um, so staying with the phrase essential worker, you know, it felt to me, and I'm sure it was on purpose, that phrase was used because we wanted to feel, we wanted, community, society at large wanted you all and the folks that do the work you do and beyond to feel like you belong, right? And so this is a podcast around belonging. And as you think about, you know, feeling like you belong, the term essential worker uh, in the face of the pandemic and even now, and it may have been a roller coaster, right? Maybe you felt like you belonged and you felt really great. And then you felt like, oh, that actually now I'm kind of being ignored or my profession or my community is not giving the getting the proper uh, expectations or respect or you know honor that it deserves. Whatever, however you want to think about that question. Um, and Lois, you can go first if you have when you get a chance to think about that. But yeah, and I, it can be a conversation as, as well. But what does that mean? How does that, how does the work, how does the feeling of belonging fit with this feeling of being, in a, uh, with the idea of being an essential worker? Well, I, I, I kind of go back to what I said before. It's just simply that acknowledgement. I think that is, and it opens the doors to those conversations around who should be in that category and how they should be treated and respected for the work that they do. Which means, um, you know, as my as my parent, my dad used to say, put your money where your mouth is. And the key to that is it then moves into where we're going to invest our money, who we're going to help take care of. And the workers, um, all of these essential workers, everyone, whether you are stocking shelves at a grocery store to um, turning patients in a bed. Every single one of us deserves um, the correct compensation for the work that we do, simply for the work that we do. And the type of infrastructure investment in our, in our different fields, whatever that may be. Um, for, I know for ourselves, for child care, uh, Mayor Harold and, and King County Executive Constantine um, gave um, funds to childcare workers um, for just simply retention bonuses for working through not taking that time off because it is not a field that is capable of paying 
what most teachers deserve because it depends on private pay from parents, which is another discussion for another day. But that then goes to where is the where are the additional funds going to come from? And in this case, they gave money that'll be distributed to staff just simply to say thank you for your service. Um, but they also promised that this was just a down payment. And so I find my job is to hold them to that part of the promise, which Absolutely. is this is just a down payment. And so we're going to continue advocating so that our field can receive that monetary acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I used to work in government uh, for the Department of Neighborhoods. And so I think the idea, the, the power of a citizen's tree and like, you know, people that are voting is that you actually hold your electeds accountable. Right. You have the receipts. They said these things. Let's hold them to it for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sean, how about you? What do you think about the, the, the idea of belonging in your workplace and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the feeling of belonging, um, you know, because right after the pandemic started, we were, we were all kind of wearing more casual wear. Um, and so people may not have looked at us in our community clinic as like, oh, you're medical, you know, but right after that, we switched to scrubs. So it's very recognizable. Um, and I used to make the trek from the Seattle Indian Health Board down to Chief Seattle Club, one of our partners, um, to do nursing care in their day center, um, like four days a week. And, you know, right when we're in the swing of things with the pandemic, I'd be walking through, you know, the ID and people would like slow down and like, you know, thank you, like out the window, you know, and then like wave you and I'm like, yeah, you know, thank you, know, I appreciate it. It felt kind of odd because it's like, you know, I don't know if anybody would ever notice before just somebody walking down the street scrubs. Um, but I think that's where I, I felt more um, belonging to the whole community, like the wider community not just like the native community or the medical community. Um, Mm -hmm. And it really like set in when we went down and set up in front of Chief Seattle Club to do COVID testing um, whenever it was really tough to get into a testing center. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we went down there for the main mission of um, reaching out to those that were um, unhoused, um, that didn't have resources to get into testing centers, much less like have a vehicle to get there um, so we set up right there on the sidewalk in front of Chief Saddle Club. Anybody could walk up. We'd give them a COVID test. Um, and being right there on Second Avenue, you know, we got more of the same people like driving by, honking, you know, saying thank you. Um, even at one point, I think Sir Mixalot drove by and gave us a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I was like, uh, "That's cool." He's like, "Don't you know who that is?" And I was like, "He looks familiar." And, you know, they're like, oh, it's Mix a lot. I'm like, oh, okay, great. I didn't know he was from here. (laughs) So I think that's, you know, um, I think that really hit home with, like, feeling that belonging um, from the whole community. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. It was was amazing, you know, and it's, I think that was the driving force, too, um, to continue with all the loss and all the, you know, constant hours of being in PPE you know, sweating out on the sidewalk. So, yeah, I think that's what it definitely means to me. Mm-hmm. Before Lois talked about, um, you know, the, the recognition is great. 
and you know part of belonging is like being seen and recognized for who you are and your full humanity but also like hey you made promises like here are the receipts like you know put your money where your mouth is is there before the podcast started Sean you and I were Sean you and I were talking and we talked about you know how society right now feels like they're kind of like oh, we're done with COVID like let's just move on even though the numbers are spiking so is there you know like obviously when the this pandemic started I worked I, I volunteered at ICHS at, a, at the COVID testing facility a few times a week and that was really cool same thing people honk by drive like appreciate you mm-hmm. but you know as like masks and vaccines got politicized as like people got tired of wearing masks uh, as like, you know, there's different public health policies changed here and there. Like, is there anything in terms of your profession that you're like, I wish this would be different or you kind of wish community would do things a little differently in terms of the way they uh, deal with the pandemic from a medical point of view? Yeah, um, I think that was really like kind of a thorn of how politicized it became so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um because with anything, even like right now with monkeypox on the rise, you know, we always have an opportunity to, you know, do our best to keep those numbers down. And I think once it became politicized with COVID, it almost like we just like I listen to NPR every day on the way to work, and I just had to turn it off so many times because I just I didn't want to throw my hands up in the car because I'm driving. But you know, it's like you just shake your head because you know, you hear the constant news about mask mandates and people fighting it and, you know, all the way up until uh, the highest in the country, which was Trump, you know, kind of fighting that. And you're just like, well, what do I do now? Like, you know, I'm still dealing with it day to day in my reality. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a struggle, you know, the way that it went about. But, you know, thankful that we still have made it this far and are able to not maintain but still kind of drive awareness that you know COVID's still here now we're dealing with this new monkey pox so just wild times we're in <laughs> that's i think that's the phrase of the day right wild times we're in lois you look like you you have something on your mind yeah i could be wrong but no. yeah no, I mean, when I was listening to Sean, I just thought about the phrase we use at the center, which is, um, you know, you may be sick of COVID, but COVID's not sick of you or sick of us, however you want to look at that and um, how we're still very much masking. I'm so happy for the um, vaccines for children under five. I cannot tell you how mm ecstatic we are about that in fact so much so that I reached out to King County and said hey would you consider having a vaccine clinic at our site for littles and they agreed so we had the first one in July and we're having the second one next week and have two more clinics uh September and October to help families and you know we had probably 80 to 90 percent of the slots filled I think for this one next week they all seem to be so just excited about um, the fact that they have access to it for those families that choose to do so, um, because of what that does is it helps to make our staff safer. Um, I am really, really lucky um, in that all of our staff want it to be vaccinated, and most that could be are you know boosted or double boosted 
So I'm very lucky in that way um, that I always say that we all believe in science and are following the science and staying away from the the way it has been politicized. Um, mm-hmm. Because to me, it's it's you know I remember being being a kid and hearing about I think was it Elvis Presley that had some type of vaccine that I think was it polio I believe. Um, and how he had to show, be vaccinated to show folk that it was okay. Um, and I think about the celebrities now, it's just, you know, it goes to that whole thing about there's nothing new under the sun and that people have always been um, skeptical of vaccines, but I am hopeful that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, receiving a COVID-19 uh, vaccine will be no different than any other of your, you know, childhood shots um so yeah that's what i was actually thinking about and how you know for us we've been very conservative and it hasn't been until the mass mandate was lifted that we've had to basically close classrooms up until that time everyone was on board but as people's patience as you said sean began to wane, um we saw our, our cases spike and but you know there's The problem with that is that then you're closing classrooms Mm. and parents have to miss work. So there's that economic fallout, right, from COVID that people don't think about, you know, not wearing a mask and how it impacts others. Mm. So that's what I was thinking about. And then the other piece I was thinking about is how my response when people say, oh, it's so good to see you. And now my response is it's good to be seen. Oh, I love that response. It is good to be seen. It's good to be seen. It's like a human essential need to be seen, to be recognized, right? To be, to be uh, counted. One of the worst things that can happen to us is to be invisible, right? Or be made invisible. I think in America's long history, which has a lot of dark spots, you know, that's, that's an understatement for sure. But, you know, the invisibility or the erasure of, especially Native American cultures, right? And Native peoples is something that I think about a lot. I think a lot about like the, the violence towards black communities and black bodies in this, uh, in American history. I think a lot about like how Asians, Asian Americans are perpetually foreigner, no matter who we are, how long we've lived here. Um, and there's so many of these like classifications of people and it makes us unseen, right? It, 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 it dehumanizes us. And I think what we're really all asking for is, you know, be a essential worker or not, is to, to see us in our full humanity, to make, be, treat us as fully human. And it, it seems like a simple ask, but it seems like a difficult response for some people. But I think that's that would really make community a lot better in a lot of respects. Um, well, I don't, you know, I, I think it's kind of at, at the end of the podcast. So I do want to close with a, a session where we love to just hear about you and what you're working on. And we want to help promote what you're doing. We want to amplify our guests. We want to uh, augment anything they're working on or accelerate what they're working on. So uh, Lois, is there anything you want to plug or talk about uh, before we close? Well, for me, it's our vaccine clinics. That's something that... Um, I can share with you um, the link because, of course, I don't know it off the top of my head. But if you go to the King County um, Vaccine Clinic blog, it should be listed there because we are partnering with them. 
Um, and so we have three more, but it, adults are also welcome as walk on, walk in, sorry. I said walk on, so I think I've been watching too much football. Um, <laughs> but adults are definitely welcome. And then children that are over five, as well as families prepare for the new school year. Um, still working with the Greater Seattle Child Care Business Coalition. Um, we are looking at um, possibly, well, we are partnering with the city to um, establish a job fair. So more information will be coming out about that because like a lot of industries, we're having a, a challenging time staffing up. And as we prepare for the new school year, um, that's going to be critical so we can have um, teachers in place to support families. Um, and then the last thing that I am working on around early learning is um, we'll be following up with the mayor and the executive Mm -hmm. to see where part two of that check is and hopefully there'll be part three and so on and so forth so those are um just three of the things that i'm working on right now wonderful and uh we'll have our guests send us links and all the information that uh is needed so we can put that in the description of the podcast so we'll definitely have those for our listeners um sean how about you yeah, uh, one thing I want to say is that's just beautiful to hear from uh, what Lois said about the vaccine clinics, clinics for children, because um, obviously having three young ones myself, we were pushing for that, you know, because um, like in the panel, she said, you know, they were forgotten. You know, we kept moving along with all these adult vaccines and everybody's like, oh, the kids are coming. The kids vaccines are coming. And it's kind of like, well, where are they? Um, and, you know, we were just so excited to be able to get our three boys um, finally vaccinated because um, up until recent, our oldest was the only one to get, you know, to qualify um, to get the recommendation for that. So I think that's just beautiful to hear that, you know, that there's still vaccine clinics just for kids um, and being full 80 to 90 percent. That's awesome. Um, I so I just recently took on a position with with the health board as a nursing manager at our satellite site. We have two new satellite sites, um, Lake City. Um, we're going to be opening a clinic there, and then we open the Pioneer Square Clinic. Um, so I love it. I'm in the heart of the community that I want to be with, and um, just being able to be on that, I guess, level of partnering with um, a lot of our partners that we were kind of distant from. Uh, Chief Seattle Club mainly, um, but also like Mother Nation. Um, there's some new Native organizations popping up. So just being able to have a clinic there that we can partner with and collaborate um, and not just provide medical care, but bring them in as um, as community, as family, and take care of them wholly um, and not just one aspect of their life. So excited about that. I love it. I love it. Aww. You know, the term essential workers, well, if we just use the two of you as examples, the work that you're doing, uh, I would definitely deem as essential, um, but not just essential to have things move forward, but the way you both uh, approach your work to see the wholeness and the fullness of people and families and, you know, taking care of, you know, full lives, not just, you know, doing a, a one part of a thing um, is something that I really appreciate for, uh, for both of you. So I appreciate you both. Uh, thank you for taking time to join us in the podcast. We will share information that our guests share with uh, you all in the links. 
uh, in the in the description. And I would also like to shout out uh, our our friend Big Phony, whose music we use for intro and outro, uh, who he lets us use his music royalty free. So with that, I want to close. Uh, thank you all. I hope you all feel like you can find someone in some place where you belong, because you definitely need to belong somewhere. Thank you all. <laughs>